The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. We're continuing to look at Old Testament occasions where a great turning point came about in the life of a person of faith. If I were to read the whole text, which really is my text today, I would do that and pronounce a benediction because really the, the story that I'm dipping into begins with David in 1 Samuel 27 and goes right through chapter 31 and even spills into the first chapter of 2 Samuel. So if you want to read something on a Sunday afternoon that maybe would stir up and and accompany in your mind whatever I'll have to say here in the next half hour, you could read that last portion from 27 onwards. But I'm reading uh, just the heart of it, and then I'll embroider it a bit as we go. Uh, 1 Samuel chapter 30, and I realize this is right in the midst of something, and I'll give it some explanation as we go along. 1 Samuel 30, beginning at verse 1. When David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day, the Amalekites had made a raid against the Negev and against Ziklag and had overcome Ziklag, burned it with fire, and had taken captive the women and all who were in it, both small and great. They killed no one but carried them off and went their way. When David and his men came to the city, they found it burned with fire and their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. Then David and the people with him raised their voices and wept until they had no more strength to weep. David's two wives had been taken captive, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David was greatly distressed for the people spoke of stoning him. Because all the people were bitter in soul, each for his sons and daughters. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. And David said to Abiathar the priest, the son of Ahimelech, bring me the ephod. So Abiathar brought the ephod to David, and David inquired of the Lord, shall I pursue after this band? Shall I overtake them? And the Lord answered him, Pursue, for you shall surely overtake and shall surely rescue. So David set out, and the 600 men with him, and they came to the brook Besor, where those who were left behind stayed. But David pursued, he and 400 men. Now jump down to verse 16 to just wrap this up. When they had come upon the Amalekites, we read, they were spread abroad over all the land, eating and drinking and dancing because of the great spoil they had taken from the land of the Philistines and the land of Judah. David struck them down from twilight until the evening of the next day, and not a man of them escaped except 400 young men who mounted camels and fled. David recovered all that the Amalekites had taken and rescued his two wives, Nothing was missing, whether small or great, sons or daughters, spoil or anything that had been taken. David brought back all. He captured all the flocks and herds, and the people drove the livestock before him and said, 
This is David's spoil. May God, even from this ancient event, teach us something important and personally helpful today from his holy word. And I say to you that I hope all of you have the opportunity this summer, we're halfway through it or better it now, to have a change of scene and get a good rest. Carol and I enjoyed that a few weeks ago. You know, you need not travel to exotic places to accomplish that. It's really not so much where you go as learning to rest, learning to set aside cares and troubles and anxieties of everyday life. When I was a younger pastor with a family and obligations to pay for kids all the time, it seemed like vacations were never very high on what we could pay for. And I always felt a little bit of a grimace coming back to the church wherever I was from vacation because everybody would say, where did you go? And I felt a little embarrassed to say, well, to my mother's place or my mother-in-law's place where it's free to stay because that's what we could afford. Well, the important issue in a vacation is learning to rest, and that includes resting in the Lord. And so I would not recommend to you, if you're a believer in God and the Lord Jesus Christ, that you take a vacation from prayer. And yet, that is exactly what happened in the life of one of the Bible's model men of prayer, if not the model man of prayer, for who else gave us more prayers than David, who composed many of the Psalms that we have, whose devotional life was rich. It included singing. It included the height and depth of every kind of emotion before God. He brought many kinds of situations and problems before God and knew how to praise God. And he began this early in his life. And yet, we find a time that we can calculate was about 16 months duration in young adulthood in his mid to late 20s when it would appear that David stopped praying for all that time. It appears he did not seek after the Lord at all in that period. Why? Well, because the lamp of his faith and his spirit was burning low. He had been proclaimed by the prophet to be the next king of Israel, and the present king of Israel, Saul, didn't like that idea very much, as you may recall, and he therefore made David's life miserable. Not just miserable, but literally, David would have been a dead man if Saul could have caught him. And he spent many months and even years being chased all around the wilderness territory by the men of Saul who wanted to kill him. And in that time, remember, David wouldn't kill Saul. He had the opportunity on at least two occasions, and he wouldn't do it. He said, I won't touch the Lord's anointed, even no matter how he feels about me. Well, finally, David got weary enough of this that he felt enough already. I just have to get out of this situation. If you would turn back and look at the beginning verse of chapter 27, you would find a rather amazing statement by David when he said in his heart to himself, I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. Now listen to what he concluded. There is nothing better for me to do than to escape to the land of the Philistines. Wow. Do you understand what he's saying? The Philistines were the most bitter enemies of Israel. And David is saying, my situation, my personal relations with the king are so bad 
that I can't think of anything better to do than to go over and seek the protection of my enemies. And so he does that, and we read in these chapters here, chapter 27 tells the story of him going to a a king of a little territory centering on the town of Gath or city of Gath, and he makes a pact with Achish, the king of Gath. Now, no matter how small your Bible knowledge, if your Sunday school days remind you of anything, you should know something about Gath. One thing, who came from Gath? Goliath. Remember that character? The very man that David had slain by faith in the Lord, the the hated enemy of Israel, the champion of the Philistines, came from Gath. Here's David saying, the best thing I can do is to go to the hometown of my enemy and make an alliance. How he did that, I don't know, but somehow King Achish accepted him. And they worked things out, and Achish must have been a pretty clever guy himself. And he probably thought, look, David's a warrior. He's killed many Philistines. I figure it'd be better to keep him close at hand where I can keep an eye on him than to have him roving around. So they assigned David a town far enough away that Saul wouldn't get at him because he'd have to pass through Philistine lines to do that. A little town in the backside of nowhere called Ziklag doesn't have any importance in the Bible except this association with David. And they said, David, take your 600 loyal men and their families, live in Ziklag, we'll let you live there, and you'll be our ally. And privately, Achish said, I can watch you. Well, have you ever found yourself in a spot in life where you don't seem to be going forward? And your career's not going very well? Or your personal relations aren't going very well? And you're searching for something to do. But instead of praying, you say, look, this is a desperate situation. I need to force something to happen. I can identify with that. Not so much maybe in my last decades of life, but in my earlier life when I was David's age in this text. I would have claimed to be a man of prayer, but I will admit now there were times when I came up against something where I seemed to be stopped whether in ministry or or whatever. And I would formulate a scheme, a plan. I would devise something and say, something has to be made to happen. The Lord doesn't seem to be making it to happen, so I will make it to happen. Now, I wouldn't have come right out and said that, but that's what I was doing. And maybe some of you can identify. You know, many Christians are very worldly when it comes to prayer. We all profess to be people of prayer, the basic language of, of relationship to God. And yet, we save most of our serious praying for times of crisis, don't we? When things are really going wrong, when there's a big need, we start to pray. When our own plans are crumbling, we start to pray. Fire extinguisher prayers. Lord, there's a fire. Please put it out. Even though we started the fire and maybe even threw some gasoline in its direction, Lord, put the fire out. Well, first of all, today, I want you to see in this broad text of 1 Samuel 27 through 30, the predicament of taking a prayer vacation. You see, David never really intended to be a true ally to the enemies of Israel or to the Philistines. This was a trick. He was playing both ends against the middle. He was sort of like a double agent in the old Cold War movies. You know, you're working for the Russians and you're working for the American and, and, and both sides are sure you're working for them. And nobody's really sure whether they can trust you. That's what David was doing. 
he had no intention of being the friend of the Philistines. In fact, he went out with his trusty men who were warriors, good warriors, and made raids all over the territory. Who did he raid? Not Israel, but the allies of the Philistines, all these different little tribes that were helping the Philistines out. But he had a surefire way of making sure the Philistines didn't find out what he was doing. He killed everybody. And there was nobody left to report what David was doing. So here he was living, you might say, on his wits and on worldly alliances, but nowhere in this long time of David's life do we find him praying or worshiping the Lord. There are no psalms that we know of that originate or that we can trace that came from this period of time. And it seems that this one-time singer of psalms and man of prayer thought, my wits are the best tool I have right now. This will work out for the time being. How could he have guessed that his loyal band of several hundred warriors who had stuck with him through thick and thin would reach the point at the end of this scheme that they would be ready to stone him because of what this led to? Well, meanwhile, you have Saul. You know, the two stories are sort of told side by side. David's story, and he was in a a kind of spiritual decline. Well, if David was in a decline... Saul was in free fall. He had already turned from the Lord and and had no vestige anymore of any relationship with God. In fact, you see in chapter 28, Saul had dropped so low, he was so weak, both spiritually, mentally, politically, every way, that he sought guidance from a witch at Endor. What a bizarre thing for a once godly man to do. And then comes the day when several Philistine kings are saying, look, Saul is weak. We can get him now. We outnumber him. We can smash him. So they call all the kings of the Philistines together. They're ready for a big battle. And, of course, Achish said, okay, David, you're my ally now. Here's your chance to prove it. Bring your men. We're going to defeat Saul, who wants to kill you. Achish must have been chuckling. I wonder how David reacted when he heard that invitation. He does the only thing he could do. He rides with his men towards the place of assembly for the battle. Remember, he had said, I would not lift my hand against God's anointed, Saul. But here he was about to line up with the troops of the Philistines against Saul until the other generals look, and you can read this in verse 20, chapter 29. The other generals of the Philistines look and they say, what is this Israelite doing here? Isn't that David, the, the thorn under our saddle all this time? We can't have him fight with us. He'll turn on us in the heat of battle. By the way, they were probably right. David most likely would have done exactly that. But because the generals didn't trust him, David and his men were sent away. Go on back. Go to Ziklag. Two days ride away. So proceeds the battle that becomes the battle of Mount Gilboa, at which Saul ends up dead and Jonathan as well. But David was not in it. Meanwhile, back at the ranch in Ziklag, the Amalekites had their spies and knew that the city was open and undefended. Amalekites are sort of known in the Old Testament as, I kind of think of them as like vultures or scavengers. They really don't like a pitched battle, but if there are easy pickings, they'll go for it. So the Amalekites came in, raided the town. You heard the text I read in chapter 30, took everything away and burned the town. Imagine David and his men 
They're thinking, wow, did we get the best of those Philistines. Now we can just go back to Ziklag and we don't have to be in this big battle. And thank you, Dame Fortune, for getting us out of that. Until they see black smoke coming in a pillar from where they knew the town was and the camels start to gallop and the horses start to gallop and desperately the men ride the last few miles and chapter 30, verse 3, tell you what they confronted. David and his men came to Ziklag and found it destroyed by fire. Their wives, sons, and daughters taken captive. His men wept aloud. David and his men wept aloud until they had no more strength to weep. David was distressed because his men talked of stoning him. Each one was bitter in spirit because of his sons and daughters. Here's a man of God standing amid the ashes of his home. All his possessions gone, his wife, his two wives, his family gone. His men hating him. And this certainly had to be the worst extremity of his young adult life. How low can a true believer slide? in a whole year spent apart from God. If you want to find out, stop praying for a year. Quite possibly there's someone here who has already begun to find that out because you did stop praying quite some time ago. And you're wondering why your life is in such an extremity of a mess. But it's not just a preacher's cliche to say that man's extremity is God's opportunity. And when a child of the grace of God is in such a place, the God of grace is there waiting to be met. And so secondly, and precisely at this dark place, mark the active providence of God's deliverance. You see, it's not a mere chance. It's not just a lucky break that the Philistine generals didn't want David around, that they turned him away. It doesn't announce this in the text But it's a constant assumption of the Old Testament that the God of glory is governing even minute circumstances of the lives of his people. And we can say that according to the word of God, it was the Holy Spirit working in the unholy minds of the Philistines that directed them to turn David back and not put him in the place where his spear or his sword had to come against Saul. God governs our lives. And we don't see very much of that government on a day-to-day basis. So often we can look back, though, can't we? And say, look back there five years ago, ten years ago. I didn't know what was going on. I was tearing my hair out at the circumstances I was facing. And now I see God was working. God was preparing things. God was governing. We, like David, are largely unconscious of the hidden hand of God directing our circumstances when everything even seems to be against us and we resort to our own foolish solutions. Could a true Christian governed by the goodness of God and the Spirit of God get into the situation David was in? I say to you, of course. Just stop praying. Just break off contact with the Lord and you will find out for yourself. And yet you don't have to be forsaken by your God. I love the words of Jesus in John 10, 29, when he said, my father 
who gave these sheep, he meant believing, disciples. My father who gave these sheep to me is greater than all, and no one can pluck them out of my father's hand. Even in this highly compromised situation David was in, the wrath of men was going to turn out for great good. The Lord was pledged to go with his covenant people and to meet them. I love 2 Timothy 2.13, which says, Even if we believe not, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. And so the climax of this story comes in 1 Samuel 30, verse 6, and it's such a quiet climax in the last sentence of that verse that it doesn't seem like a climax at all. There's very dramatic events in these chapters, but the very quiet, undramatic sentence there at the end of 30, verse 6, but David strengthened himself in the Lord, his God. You say, that's not very dramatic. Big deal. It is a big deal because it appears to be the first time it ever happened in 16 months of this young man's eventful life. So here we see the power of authentic repentance in this life. David wept and wailed and he had ashes in his mouth as well as on his sandals as he stood there in Ziklag seeing what futility and ruin his own plans and his double dealing and his trickery and his scheming had brought him into. Here were men who had sacrificed everything, fame and fortune and reputation, to stand with him, and they were ready to kill him. I woke up this morning with a, one of these kind of crazy dreams. There's a, there's a certain dream I have from time to time. It always has different circumstances, but a common theme. The theme of it is I have to be somewhere to speak at a service. And it's always a church building, not this church. And so I have to arrive and find out where I park, and I usually have to park six blocks away, and then I can't find the building. And then I find the building, and I can't find where I'm supposed to be or who's supposed to meet me, and I know it's time for the service to start, and I'm not there. This is what terrorizes a pastor on early Sunday morning, (laughs) see. Well, David was in the midst of like a man awakening from a long, scary dream, only to find out that, in fact, his bed was on fire. What would he do? Quietly, he did the one and only thing he could do. He strengthened himself in the Lord his God. That means he prayed. Tiny conjunction begins that sentence, but. Everything was going against him, but David strengthened himself in the Lord is God. Repentance, you see, before the Lord is an act that defies appearances, that defies circumstances, that says, when I don't see any help or hope, there is a helper and there is hope in my God. He was completely humbled here. And he didn't write a psalm based on this occasion as far as we know, but the words of Psalm 40, which he did write, might well have spoken to this situation David said there, the Lord turned to me and heard my cry. He lifted me out of a slimy pit, out of the mud and mire. He set my feet on a rock, made my steps secure, gave me a place to stand, and put a new song in my heart. And as a result of this, you see what happened. 
He prayed. He asked God, what should I do? Will you give me success? The Lord said, I will. He went and was crowned with complete success in that raid that he made on the Amalekites. David found strength in the Lord, his God. In other words, this was a reunion of a pre-existing relationship. David didn't meet God for the first time. He came back to the God whom he had long known. And prayer in that situation is a lot like riding a bicycle. You, you uh, those of us, I'll include myself, of uh, the older generation who maybe don't ride bicycles, haven't been on one in a long time, probably could get on a bicycle and, you know, maybe the front wheel would wobble, but you could go down the road. You remember how to ride a bicycle. If you're a believer who once has known the strength of your God in your life, you can get back on the bicycle of prayer and find that God hasn't changed, he hasn't moved, he's been in the same place all the time, and his mercy awaits you. One translation of 1 Samuel 30, verse 6 says, David refreshed himself in the Lord his God. Were you refreshed a few days ago when it finally rained and your lawn finally got a little greener and the temperature finally went down? I was. David refreshed himself. It was like scooping cold water and throwing it over his face to come back to his God, to get sure direction and a new song and the calm courage he needed to face his immediate future. Now, you see, Saul never experienced that. We're meant to see these two men in contrast. Yes, David faltered badly, but he was the man after God's heart and he recovered. Saul, as I said, was just in a free fall downward. And the next chapter is going to tell of his death in a very ignominious way on the battlefield, committing suicide rather than facing death that the Philistines themselves would bring. Saul's soul was morbid before that battle of Mount Gilboa ever began to happen. David's was not. He was a believer in disobedience and wandering and rebellion and on vacation from prayer. But God did a very different thing in that life. I think this whole story tells us that God never chose a perfect king. He never appointed a perfect pastor, never, never called to himself a perfect disciple. Yes, David was the man after God's own heart, but it certainly didn't mean he couldn't waver or fall. We think of his great fall with Bathsheba later on after he was king. But here's a whole year in which he didn't pray. And yet God was ready with the immediate recovery for him. Saul had no such knowledge or no such experience because he had no true relationship. We are led to believe and understand Saul was not a believer. He looked like one, but he wasn't. He died without God and without hope in this world or the next. David had in his faith and in the grace of God a basis of recovery. Do you? You know, I'd like to appeal especially to young adults among us today. Your 20s are an amazing time. You know, they, tell you that, they tell you that your teenage years in high school are the best years of your life. I don't agree. I think your 20s are your best years. Your body actually works. You know, let me tell you, the day's coming when it won't. You're primarily healthy if God gives you good health. Your 20s is a time to enjoy that. You're, you're an adult. 
You have opportunities to do things. Your learning starts to come to a point of fruition. Your career starts to move forward. Perhaps you're meeting a person to spend your life with. Lots of exciting things happen. But it's also quite possible in young adulthood to come up against roadblocks and to feel, man, you know, I went to college and I got in $40,000 in debt. Now I can't get a worthwhile job except slinging coffee at people or something. You know, what's going on? This isn't the life I planned. I haven't found that person to marry that I thought would be waiting for me. Why? What's wrong? And young adults can get into a lot of roadblocks like David's and and maybe say, the best thing I could do is fill in the blank with something utterly wrong and not in making that decision begin for a moment to wait before the Lord and pray. I want to ask you today, and it might come after some long neglect, young adults, and I mean late teens, 20s, early 30s, are you in one of those times of life where you've been on a bit of a vacation from prayer, if it had to be admitted? Will you humble yourself in a heartfelt way and turn as David did? And strengthen yourself in the Lord your God. If you wonder why Ziklag ashes are in your mouth, it might be a lot of your own doing. Let David lead the way for you until you could say something that he wrote later on in Psalm 17. I call upon you, Lord, and you will answer me, O God. Show me your steadfast love, O Savior, of those who seek refuge at your right hand. Keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me under the shadow of your wings. Pray that way in humility. And the God who's never taken a vacation from you will answer and show his might and his mercy. Let's pray together. Father, We do many foolish things. We as believers do foolish things. We pledge ourselves to you. We accept Christ as our Savior. We mean it. And we have that germ of eternal life stirring in us. We feel confident of that. But then we go off and live our lives in worldly ways. And we make very important decisions without stopping at all, to pray long at all. Lord, we're so much like David, even though our circumstances are not at all like a desert raider of thousands of years ago. Would you humble us before people are ready to stone us? Humble us before you. Show us your might and power and wisdom and strength and grace. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.